Welcome to Gays with Kids. Gays with Kids. A podcast about creating and raising families. Creating and raising families together. 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 I'm David Dodge. I'm the executive editor at Gays with Kids. My pronouns are he and him. Today, I'm going to bring you the first in a four-part series about in vitro fertilization, better known as IVF, and some of the interesting trends in this space as it relates to gay men. Why does it seem like every gay man who uses IVF ends up with twins? Is IVF an option for HIV-positive gay men? Will insurance ever cover the cost of IVF for gay men? We're going to tackle each of these questions and more in the coming weeks, but first, let's just define IVF in case you have no idea what it is. So IVF is basically just the process by which embryos are created outside of the body in a lab. Uh, The first baby conceived of this way was born in 1978, and since then, over 8 million IVF babies have born all across the world, mostly to those struggling with infertility, but also more recently to many queer men who create their families via surrogacy. So we've come a long way since those early days of IVF when the practice was pretty controversial, not all that effective, and babies born this way were maligned as test tube babies in the media. Today, IVF is safer, more effective, and more widely practiced and accepted than ever before, and each and every year is bringing new and exciting developments into the space. So in our four-part series, we're going to explore many of these trends as they relate to gay men, and we're going to do so with the help of four of the country's leading reproductive endocrinologists who are not only at the cutting edge of this technology, but are also practitioners of it at some of the country's top fertility clinics. We're going to kick things off today with Dr. Guy Ringler of California Fertility Partners, who's going to speak with us about what is for many gay men, one of the most important and nerve-wracking parts of the IVF process, choosing your egg donor. So we're going to talk about uh, how egg donor selection has changed over the years, where some of the trends are going, and Dr. Ringler will also leave you with some of his best practices and tips towards the end of the episode. So I hope you enjoy the conversation, and I look forward to seeing you all on the other side of this four-part series when we're all IVF experts and pretty much doctors. Um, kidding. We'll, we'll at least be a little bit more well-rounded in some of the trends around IVF. Um, but please do let us know what you think about the series at dadsatgayswithkids.com, or you can use the hashtag GWKpod on uh, social media. And also please like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Guy Ringler of California Fertility Partners. How are you doing? Good, thanks. Thanks for inviting me. Of course. Okay, so today we are going to talk about uh, a very important part of uh, the IVF and surrogacy journey for gay men, and probably the one that gives people maybe the most uh, (laughs) headaches um, or worrisome parts of this process is the egg donor selection process. So actually, why don't we just start with a a breakdown of what that process is like, both from the um, egg donor's perspective and also from the perspective of intended fathers? Sure. No, I think selection of the egg donor is actually one of the most important parts of the process, because not only will her genes become the genes of your children, but her overall egg quality, her egg production will have an impact on your overall success rate. So I always advise my patients to take your time, select your donor carefully, don't rush into it. It's a big decision. Um, It's a very personal decision. Um, You're going to start off with a discussion of whether you want to work with an open donor or an anonymous donor. Um, For many of my patients, they really like getting to know the donor um, so they have a better sense of who she is, but uh, more so for the future children. So the children will have all the information their curiosity needs to find out how they were made. You know, who, who was the egg provider and what, what is she like? What does she do? They, they will have lots of questions. It's nice to be able to give them as much information as possible. If you prefer the comfort of a, an anonymous donor, um, it, you still 
receive a lot of information on the donor to get a sense of who she is. So you will see photographs, personal statements, her personal medical history, genetic history, the family genetic history. So you do have access to a lot of information before you make your decision. And in our program, um, I work with many different outside egg donor agencies just to provide my patients a large selection of candidates. So you can really find whatever you're looking for in terms of um, ethnicity, um, family heritage, um, appearance, educational level, um, personal interests. And I always say that you should search until you find the, the, the individual, the candidate that's perfect for you someone that you respond to, there's something about her her appearance, her family history, her personal interests that really clicks for you. It's sort of like choosing your life partner, you know, in a way. You don't select the first, you know, person who checks all the boxes. You, there's something there's something extra that, you know, drives you towards that person. And my patients say the same thing about their egg donors. All of a sudden there's a there's something that just clicks, jumps out of the page at them that they want to find out more. The next step, of course, is to evaluate her history. You want to make sure she has a, a normal, healthy, personal medical history, does not have any serious medical problems. Um, and it's important to ask about her, her reproductive history, her menstrual cycles. Does she have regular cycles? Are they irregular? Um, women with irregular cycles um, oftentimes have more variability in egg quality. And our goal, of course, is to obtain eggs of the highest quality to give you the highest quality embryos for the process. It's important to know her family genetic history um, and what we're looking for are clusters of disease to make sure there's not a lot of cancer, not a lot of um, addiction, um, alcoholism. Um, and then she will have genetic carrier screening just like the you, the sperm provider, will have. Everyone today does genetic carrier screenings to see if you have any mutations for genetic disease. And this is all so that we can minimize the risk of genetic disease in the children. So if you know you have a mutation for cystic fibrosis, for example, you cannot work with a donor who shares that mutation. Um, so you are going to want to know your genetic um, mutations before making a final selection of your egg donor. So what happens after you've chosen your egg donor? Once you select your egg donor, then she undergoes complete medical screening. If she's a first-time donor, um, she will have psychological screening, her genetic carrier screening, of course. She'll have um, an interview with a geneticist to review the family history looking for genetic disease. And then physical exam, um, including an ultrasound to look at her ovaries to make sure the ovaries look healthy and have a sufficient number of follicles. And then she will do infectious disease screening or drug screening. And another test of ovarian reserve um, called um, anti-mullerian hormone or AMH. Because in the treatment process, um, we want to make sure she's going to make a sufficient number of eggs to give us enough embryos to achieve your goal of having a baby. So an ultrasound of her ovaries in the beginning of the menstrual cycle will show us how many follicles she's recruited for that month. These are called, this is called antrofollicle count. Um, the number of follicles in the beginning of a cycle will correlate with how many eggs she can produce in an egg donation cycle, as will the blood level of anti-mullerian hormone or AMH. So those two tests, the AMH level 
and the antrophollicle count will predict the number of eggs you will make in the treatment cycle. And my goal is always to retrieve somewhere between 20 and 30 eggs because that will end up producing somewhere between four and eight genetically normal embryos to use in the treatment process. And that's an approximation. It can be, be more embryos, less embryos. And we want to make sure we have at least several embryos to achieve a pregnancy. And it's always nice to have some extras as backup or for ex extras for, number, for baby number two. So when you're going back to looking at egg donor candidates, you will find that some egg donor candidates are first-time donors, meaning they haven't done this before, or, and repeat donors. If she is a repeat donor, the agency can tell you how well she did in the prior cycle, how many eggs she produced, how many embryos she had for biopsy or, or freezing. And so it's important to ask your physician to review that data um, to gain a sense of what her egg quality was, because we want to, all the egg donors are young and healthy, but what I see clinically is some egg donors tend to make higher quality eggs, higher quality embryos than other young women. And an egg donor with good quality eggs tends to be repetitive from cycle to cycle. So ask your doctor to review that data to gleam a sense of the egg embryo quality um, to, to support your decision of working with that egg donor. I'm going to quickly just plug all the great resources that we've created uh, with you and um, some of our other partners at gazewithkids.com. So you, if you have any questions about that process, please go to gazewithkids.com, go to our uh, learning center, and you can find webinars and uh, short video clips that go into even more detail about the egg donor selection process. Because like you said, it is a very important and, and complicated part of the process. But so I'm also curious to know, given your experience uh, in this area over the years, how have you seen the egg donor selection process change since you first got into this business uh, to now? Well, the biggest change is just the um, wide variety of candidates, um, the, the greater access, greater resources available. In the beginning, there were only a couple egg donor agencies. Now we have dozens of egg donor agencies, and it just gives, gives patients more choice, more selection. There's wonderful agencies. There's concierge services that will help you select an egg donor. Um, I have an assistant in my office that helps patients uh, in s selecting egg donors from different agencies um, because some sometimes you can feel overwhelmed by the, the large number of candidates and the information and not sure how to interpret it at all. Um, so fortunately, there are many individuals can help you through the process. Um, because as I said before, it is such an important part of the process. And, and where do you kind of see, are, are there kind of trends or anything you kind of see on the horizon in the egg donor selection process that uh, we're not quite there yet or kind of innovation that, you, that you're excited about? Well, I think we're beginning to see the development of some frozen egg banks um, for egg donor selection. Um, and there's pluses and minuses to using frozen eggs. One of the pluses is they're already available frozen, so there's less time involved. One of the negatives is if you look at national statistics on um, frozen egg success rates versus fresh eggs, there's still um, a higher success rate with fresh embryos from a treatment cycle. And using fresh eggs, we usually end up with more eggs per treatment cycle to give you more embryos um, than when you start with frozen eggs. Um, but it's, it's an option that some, some of my patients find attractive. 
I'm finding more of my patients um, selecting open donors, so they, they do have that connection for the future, and so I think that's very positive. So you, you mentioned a couple of them. So where can people now find, what are all the options available for finding and sourcing an egg donor? And how do you, how does your office kind of help people think through the, those options? Well, I usually start by asking my patients what they're looking for in terms of an egg donor. And everyone should make a wish list of what characteristics are most important to them, um, whether it's facial features, family heritage, educational level. Um, and I, I will, based upon their, that information, I will direct them to a handful of agencies. And I always tell my patients, I don't care which agency she comes from. It's as long as she's a good match for you, you feel really good about her. And she passes all of our medical scrutiny. <laughs> you know, I want to make sure she's going to make enough eggs. She's in good health. And, you know, if she's done, if she's has donated before that, um, she's produced high quality eggs and embryos from, from that prior treatment cycle. So, um, uh, some of my patients re request assistance selecting their egg donor, and I have someone in my office that is able to help them navigate the different agencies. Um, and I work with several fertility consultants that will do all the legwork for you. And if you tell them what you're looking for, then they will search um, many of the egg donor agencies in the country to help you find that special someone um, for your family building journey. You, you've mentioned this uh, in passing, but I'd love to unpack this a little bit more. So you said another trend that you have noticed over the course of your career is uh, a trend towards more known donors or people that are interested in having an ongoing relationship with their donor in some way. Um, so why, why do you think that that is? Well, I think everyone wants to build a, a healthy, happy family in the future. And um, you know, now that... Um, all these treatment options are available. Um, people are paying a lot of attention to the process and con considering the health and happiness of their future children. And I think it's it's good to be able to pr provide that information for the children when they ask someday. I've had patients from years ago that used anonymous donors and, you know, in some situations where they didn't disclose to the children how they were created. Um, and the children are, start asking questions, and it's always best to have as much information as possible. And um, having met the donor and knowing her information to, gives you all of the facts to present to your children when they begin to ask, rather than feeling for the what you don't want is the children to feel like you're hiding information and that there's something bad or negative about that information. No, absolutely. And it, it also just seems like the trend towards more known donor relationships is it's just harder to remain anonymous in today's <laughs> day and age. What with it social is. media and genetic testing, all this stuff that, you know, you hear these stories of people uh, connecting um, that that wasn't necessarily the intention at the outset. But uh, but then, like you're saying, also just the research seems to really point to um, these uh, known relationships to being very uh, important for everyone involved. Absolutely. And I just want to add also that these egg donors are, are really remarkable young women. You know, they are, you know, take two weeks of injections, go through a minor surgical procedure that has some discomfort, and they're doing this to help other individuals have children. And they're bright, motivated, interesting young women. And so I enjoy working with them. Um, sometimes I feel bad that the intended parents don't have the opportunity to meet them, to get to know them as I as I've had during the process. 
I'll I'll say as a as a sperm donor, a known donor to a lesbian couple, the process is uh, not 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 as complicated. So <laughs> it is a, it is very impressive what uh, these women are willing to go through to help Ab- other people absolutely form their family. Yeah, uh, but so on that subject, actually, so have you seen a trend towards? Uh, so I mean, the difference between like knowing who your egg donor is versus a known donor, um, like like I am to uh, my children, um, is that uh, something you're seeing more? common as well? Uh, people coming to you with a, a friend or family member that they want to serve as an egg donor? And how has that changed over the course of your career, if at all? Now, we've seen that over the years. Um, it's always nice if you have a friend or, or sometimes a relative that can can fit that role. Um, most, most often, the individuals do not have that person. Um, um, we see that occasionally. It's not a large, large part of our practice, but it's always nice to, to get to, to know that individual. So let's also talk a little bit on how you counsel gay men. You, you mentioned this a little bit. You know, I hear uh, people walking in, they like, you know, they want like an egg donor that's like six foot tall and gorgeous and graduated from Harvard and, you know, all, all of these things, <laughs> uh, which, you know, makes sense. You want to you want to give the uh, we're in the rare position if you're using surrogacy and IVF as your family building option to, to be choosing these traits um, in your in your um parenting partner, but so what, uh, what kind of advice do you give p- to people as they're thinking this through and like how important are these characteristics versus others? You know, it's really a personal decision and <laughs> patients come in with strong feelings about what they're looking for. Um, I mean, the common, you know, priority characteristics are, of course, healthy, smart, and attractive, you know, and the different variations of those. And I think, you know, because I always I advise patients to, to search until you find what you're looking for, and they will, and they, they, they don't tend to sway from those characteristics. But but it's funny. Sometimes they'll, you know, all of a sudden find this donor. Well, it's not exactly those characteristics, but there's something about her that just, just really seems special to me. And, you know, so that, that happens oftentimes. I think you, you make your list of criteria, but it's really about the individual and something about the total story that you will respond to or not. And you really want to search until um, you can experience that. You find somebody that you feel really good about. Maybe you liked her childhood upbringing and her family history. And um, you like the fact that now she's really into music and you have a music background. So um, it's a process and you sort of have to go through the selection process and search process to, to help further define what you're looking for. You may have thought you're looking for this, but now you're seeing, you're seeing those donors and now like, oh, the, the, this one's not exactly that, but there's, I really like her. So there, there's some sort of connection you will find. So is there is there much that's changed about what we can learn from screening egg donors uh, that's new today that wasn't, let's say, 20 years ago? Um, and also, is there kind of a are there future things that you hope that we'll be able to screen for that we can't right now? And I get we can broaden this up to um, to screenings for embryos too and, and uh, intended parents. Sure. I, I think today we focus more, I think, on ovarian reserve testing, um, checking their AMH levels, antral follicle counts, just because we know how important egg number is in the process, uh, especially if you have a gay couple, two sperm providers, those eggs are going to be divided into two groups. So 20 sounds like a large number of eggs, but that means each intended parent is getting 10. Well, if that egg donor is making 12 eggs, they're each getting six. It gets a little risky that one intended parent could end up with no genetically normal embryos due to the, the smaller sample size. 
I think ovarian reserve testing is very important. We're doing more of that. Um, genetic carrier screening, the panels keep expanding. You know, 20 years ago, we checked for four or five different diseases, and now most panels have somewhere between 250 to 300 different genetic diseases that we're testing for. Of course, the more extensive these panels get, the more rare these diseases are, but it's really all intended to minimize risk of genetic disease in the children. Um, so, and as, what's important today is both the sperm provider and egg provider are tested on the same panel. So because if one panel covers 200 diseases, the other is 300, um, you, you, you don't want to miss some things. And, you know, the, the question is what in the future, what additional, um, disease conditions will we be able to test for in the embryo? Um, I think, you know, Reproductive genetics continues to uh, blossom and grow, and we'll be testing for more and more health conditions in the future that aren't readily available now, but I do see that coming down the line. Interesting. Lastly, so I think people have this in mind when it comes to obviously sperm donation more than egg donation, but these, you know, stories from, you know, 15, 20 years ago of a single sperm provider going into a sperm bank and resulting in a brood of like 80 <laughs> people that, they, that the donor themselves weren't even aware of. So obviously, I don't think that's quite uh, the same uh, in egg donation. But can you talk about how you've seen these kinds of regulations change for, from the perspective of um, donors? Like how how many times is an egg donor allowed to donates uh, and, and resulting in um, a child, like you know, how many potential half-siblings could someone have? Well, the, there's our guidelines published by the American Society for Reproductive Medicine that recommends that an egg donor limit the number of donations to six cycles um, just for her overall general health, and not because we know of any problems in her future if she donates more than six times, but it was, it was arbitrarily chosen as a um, just a simple, safe number. Um, also, we want to minimize the number of potential offspring um, that would end up living in one geographic region that could end up getting together in the future. Um, the reality for our practice, I mean, we do follow the ASRM guidelines. Um, and, and I have to say that most women um, who donate eggs really will donate for one to four times max. It's unusual for a donor to do beyond four cycles because they're busy in their their life and their careers, and it's it, it does is is somewhat disruptive to them um, to, to do an egg donation cycle. I have to say, in our practice, um, we see patients from all over the world who come for egg donation. So, you know, the chance of of one child um, getting together with another child in another country is pretty pretty remote. So. Uh, I'm not too worried about about that, but I I think in general the reality is most donors, you know, don't don't want to do more than several cycles. So just on a final note for someone that might be listening to this and they're just starting to wrap their mind around the donation process, uh, what would what kind of one piece of advice would you give them as they're just kind of embarking on this and how to make a uh, make a decision? Uh, I think it's very important that to take your time and search for your perfect donor. Um, whatever is makes perfect for you, whether it's her personal appearance, it's her, her health his background, her educational background, search until you find that individual. She's out there. There's thousands of egg donor candidates. Um, and then secondly, 
make sure that she's going to do well for you. Ask your doctor to review her records, um, to give an assessment as to whether or not she's going to make enough eggs, to whether she can make good quality eggs to help you achieve your goal of having a healthy baby. Dr. Ringler of California Fertility Partners, thanks so much for breaking down this process for us. And we'll uh, see you on a future webinars and on our sites and also um, hopefully on a future podcast. Thank you very much. 